0: Um, So, let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to John 21. We've already had some readings out of there, so that's good. But while we're opening up to there, now this is our last, after living in John for over two years, this is our last chapter. So, oh, I thought that was a bit sad, but Raji's glad to move on. Um, And today, I'm probably not even really going to spend too much time in our passage. Um, I'm going to use a theme from our passage Uh, in John as a launch pad into Peter's first epistle, uh, we're going to explore and expand the theme out of that book. Okay, so from looking at Peter, as Tim mentioned, later on in life, about 30 years later. um, We're going to overlook, we're going to overview that first book of Peter and we're going to dig around and have a look at a few things around persecution and stuff. So this sermon will be a sort of continuation of my O Peter sermon from a few weeks ago, and you can catch up on that later on the church website or on the YouTube channel if you want. So previously, looking at Peter in John, okay, we ran through a quick personality profile of the guy. Do you guys remember that? Um, we found out that if he didn't have his left foot in his mouth, he had his right foot in his mouth, okay? <laughs> he, it was just really crazy, all these unfiltered thoughts that he sort of verbalized during his time with Jesus. And we looked at all the times that he was warned about his fleshy self-confidence, Okay. And we saw where that ended up with him denying Jesus in the high priest's courtyard. So the last we saw of Peter was when the rooster crowed and Jesus looked across the courtyard and caught Peter's gaze and in that moment Peter is demolished by his shame and then he runs out and weeps bitterly. So that was, as I mentioned in the previous sermon, that was our end comma point, okay, Um, and that was pretty low. Peter has said, you know, Jesus, I know you're the Christ and all, but... This is going to cost me something, I don't know you. Okay, now that's all of us, as we found out through our actions, so we don't get to point the finger at Peter, we've got to look at ourselves under that same light. So, before we read our message, um, before we yeah, read our passage, sorry, um, I don't want to say the message, I'll get Raji offside. The worst and central day of eternity has happened, followed by a few days later, the most glorious. Okay, Jesus has been showing up in locked rooms to his disciples, he's been um, showing up to Thomas, to um, who needed tangible proof, okay, and he's been performing signs and proves to his disciples as well. So, we'll start our reading, <clears throat> uh, cursory sort of reading, in John chapter 20, 31. Now, this is our memory verse, and I've loved how the whole sermon and everything has really just tied together today. Um, I think this verse is really special, and I just want it to have a sort of special mention. Um, now, to use this verse and as a sort of word of warning of this sermon, um, it will seem heavy and foolish for someone who doesn't believe that they have been covered by the blood of Jesus. Okay, so and if you haven't come to know him personally, this this is where you'll fit. Okay, so if you're listening and you don't know him right now, um, then please just take this verse that I'm about to read. I want you to explore it and take up its challenge on the book of John. And talk to someone you know who is a true Christian and it says this, okay? Speaking of the whole book of John, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I want you to take that, explore it, study the book of John and my prayer for you is that this doesn't let you go, doesn't give you any rest, okay, until you have come to personally know Jesus and have invested your life in his death saving death and resurrection, okay? So with that in mind, let's go to John 21. And thanks, Luke, and for organising Nadine and and Nolsey to read that out for us. I'm going to start at verse 15 of John chapter 21. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter knows what's going on here. And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him he said to Jesus, "Lord, what about this man?" And Jesus said to him, "If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me." Peter, you can't help but love the guy, can you? Like we don't we didn't read it then, but we read it earlier in the dean section and here he's in the boat with the others, he's spinning yarns, he's probably got his foot in his mouth, he's probably choking on his toes. And John says, it's the Lord, and he's straight in, he chucks his cloak <laughs> on, he's back into the water, and he's paddling for the shore. I just love it. And I love that whole scene that Jesus has set up to come and restore Peter to himself. Like, do we see the similarities in it? It's, it's a love reminiscent to the prodigal son's father. Okay, Jesus restores Simon, as he's referred to here, back to being Peter, back to being Cephas, back to being the rock. Okay, with these three questions and the three statements... For each time Peter denied, Jesus was, feed my lambs, tend my sheep and feed my sheep. And there's also another few little similarities in there, like the charcoal fire. There was a charcoal fire that they were all standing around in the high priest's courtyard. Now, we know what smells like for bringing back memories. So, Jesus is using a charcoal fire to cook the fish, you know, that Peter's like, oh no, this is that moment again, you know. And... The time of day, very similar time of day, we realize that Peter, you know, when he left the courtyard, day dawn basically after that, and this is at dawn, okay? So very similar time and a lot of similarities around this. So this is Jesus picking up his repentant servant, okay, and setting him back on the path that he has laid out for him to become one of the central pivots in establishing his early church. Okay, now come to verse 18 with me, as this is where we're going to launch from. Uh, It's a bit cryptic, so it reads, and it reads this... Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, popular church tradition claims that Peter was crucified upside down. Okay, uh, and some scholars see the reference to you all stretch out your hands as one to crucifixion, and in John 13, 36, where Jesus is saying to Peter, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Some seem to think that that is an illusion to back up this view. Okay, In any case, that's conjecture, Okay, and it doesn't really matter, but the fact that I want to pull out of the text here is that Peter was going to die a martyr's death, a death that would glorify God, and the relationship to what Jesus says next, follow me, okay? And Jesus had already called Peter. He called all the disciples for that matter. But, and, they, and for the most part, they'd done an okay job of following him. But now in restoration of Peter and setting him up as to be that pillar in the early church, he calls him to follow him to his own death. Oh, is, is that a selfish calling? No, I don't think so. Jesus has already died for, died for him. And I, I just... I smile at classic Peter then coming out with that last part of the chapter where Peter's probably thinking, oh man, okay, how am I going to die? You know, am I going to get stoned? Am I going to get crucified? Am I going to get my head chopped off? You know, all these crazy things. And then he sees John and he's like, "All right, okay, what about him? (laughs) And then Jesus lovingly reminds him, don't you worry about him, mate. You know, you follow me. You follow me. (laughs) And that's the point to remember. We're all called to follow Jesus, okay? Whether that means persecution through a long life Um, like John, die an old man on his deathbed, or to be killed, to to be called into church building and to be killed like Peter. Okay, everyone, eyes off everyone else, follow Jesus. Okay, time to launch now into into 1 Peter. So turn with me through your Bibles or your apps or whatever to um, Peter's first epistle. Now we're going to, today we're going to outline this book, okay? We're going to dig through a few of the main sections to understand godly living through our persecution of whatever form that takes in following Jesus. And so, looking at the start and the end of the letter, by way of bookends, we see in the first verse, this is a letter by Peter, to encourage all the saints in all the churches through the area that today we would call modern, uh, modernly, that, that we would call northern Turkey. Okay? Um, and in the last verse of chapter 5, verses of chapter 5, we see that it was delivered onto and circulated through those churches by a dude by the name of Silvanus, which we more commonly know him as his shortest version of his name, Silas. We're all comfortable with Paul and Silas, yeah. So the churches in this area were coming... A bit of history, they were coming into a time of lesser acceptance by the Greco-Roman society and Peter alludes to a rise in verbal abuse and discrimination because of their faith. And in some verses... But he, he doesn't mention anyone getting bashed, physically harmed or killed for their faith, okay? So, but history tells us that that comes later, okay? Now, if we were to think of where our Christianity is placed in society today, this would be pretty close, okay? So through the Holy Spirit's advice, through Peter, to these early church men and women in 60-something AD, okay, it's as relevant as ever to us now. Okay? So we can learn a lot from this. Now, Peter's style of approaching the subject of dealing with persecution is that he starts with focusing on truth. Okay? He, he helps us as the audience be reminded and to recalibrate our minds and tune back into God's view of the world at the start. Okay? He lifts our gaze up out of our immediate problems into a heavenly view where we can see things with God's perspective a little bit clearer. Okay? He then follows that truth refocusing stage with application and instructions, okay, for what we are to do and to keep doing while we are being persecuted. And this becomes easier to accept as it is already been preceded by and coupled with that refocusing truth stage, okay? So they go hand in hand four times. There's a little bit of a hiccup in the second one that I feel. Um, so the four groups, effectively it goes truth, application instruction truth application instruction truth application instruction truth application instruction good okay so it sort of makes sense let's go through the first one and it'll probably click for us so our first bit of truth that peter presents us with is in verse 3 of chapter 1 blessed be the father sorry blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." Now, that is primary truth for a Christian, okay? And hidden in verse 6 and 7 there is the key to this sitting in First Peter. Yep, you've been grieved with various trials, okay? I get that. So that your faith can be tested and can be found to be genuine, which proves your salvation. Now, what's Peter's pattern? What do we talk about? Truth, application, instruction, that's right. You see, it would be hard to get a set of directions... ...for us to live godly way, okay, when we are consumed by the tough times that we're going through. So the Holy Spirit refreshes us and gives us a big hug, reminds us of who we are. Now Christian, this is how you to live, okay? So our first is in verse 14 of chapter 1. Our first calling is to be holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance... But as he who is holy, but sorry, as he who has called you to be holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay, so we know God is holy, and this is great because Tim pulled this out earlier. We know God is holy, obviously. How can we be holy? Okay, I thought we were filthy sinners. Yeah. How how do we how are we ever meant to measure up to God's standard? How how is this fair? Okay. The clue is in the phrase, since it is written, okay, is Peter referring to portions back to Leviticus 11 and 19 where God is setting apart the children of Israel from the nations around them, okay? He he sets up different standards like what they can eat and how they are to behave, okay? The same inflection here. If we are called to be holy, we are called to be different to those around us. All right, following God's standards and not those of the society around us, which our fleshy self would would want to fall in line with. Now, the second application out of this first one is to love others. So, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, this call to love others is pretty self-explanatory, except for the ability to to be able to do it. Okay, and what I mean by that is, sure, we can love our parents, our spouses, our children, our friends, whatever. But what about the person who constantly complains? What about the person who smells like a rotting toad? What about the person who is constantly bullish or abusive or something like that? Okay, The only way that we can love that person is through the Holy Spirit living in us and giving us strength to. Any common Joe Blow can go and love someone who loves him, okay? But to love the unlovable is an example set to us by Jesus Christ and is a spirit-given gift that we're commanded to utilize and grow through in tough times, okay? Now, the third and final application in this first truth is to crave God's word. Now, like newborn infants, in, sorry, in verse 2 of chapter 2, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So pure spiritual milk, huh? I didn't see that on the shelves last time in Coles or Woolies. Like it's, it's a really odd phrase, hey? Okay? But it's really a clever, symbolic picture of what the idea that Peter's trying to get across here. So if I was to use our little princess, Zali, as a good example, she's a bit of a milk glut, okay? Any opportunity it comes... She is craving the good milk that she gets from her mum. Okay, She needs it for hydration to quench her thirst. She needs it for her, her sustenance to get stronger and to grow up. So with that hint in mind, what's Peter getting at with this spiritual milk bizzo? I know, I gave it away earlier, but it's God's word. Okay, The chapter breaks here are a bit unfortunate and uninspired. Um, as we kind of lose the flow of the letter from the break from chapter 1 to chapter 2... But Peter has just been talking about the Word, the good news, before he goes into talking about spiritual milk. okay? So you're holding a spiritual milk bottle in your hot little hands right now. okay? Your Bible, get stuck into it, crave it, live it, love it, memorize it, the whole bang. So you can grow up as a Christian. So to sum up the first truth, as suffering is a proving ground for our faith, and salvation we are told to be holy or be set apart. We're told to love others and to crave God's Word. Okay, so that's our first chunk. How are people feeling with that? Make sense? So our next next truth bomb for um, refocus is loaded up and it's about to be dropped, okay? So come down to verse 4 of chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men So the honour is for you who believe by those who do not believe the stone, sorry, but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into His marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are God's holy people. Okay? You are God's holy people. I don't know how to put it any better than that, but please realise that. Okay? You are chosen and precious, and whoever trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. I know you're copying a flogging, says God, for claiming my name, but you're mine and you're precious and I won't let you be shamed. Okay? That's, that's amazing. Now, now, these applications that follow that are a series of calls to pursue purity in our relationships on all levels of interaction from ourselves... Our spouses, if we are married, the authorities over us and everybody else, everyone we meet in life. Okay, so first we are to pursue purity and excellent behaviour toward yourself. This is in verse 11 of chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Okay, so first up let's notice the title given to us of Sojourners and Exiles. All right, we are passing through. We are not to settle. We're not asylum seekers trying to find a home, trying to, some, trying to settle down somewhere, okay? We are, as Paul calls us in Philippians 3, citizens of heaven, okay? So why would we want to settle here when our home, our real home, is so much better? So no, you're not an asylum seeker. You don't belong here. Think of any sort of asylum seeker protest sign and apply it to yourself. You never will, belong here, okay? This life here is one of being an outcast, a vagabond, with our only job of any worth being of telling the world, as we pass through it, of Jesus Christ, okay? And, verse 9 above, the excellencies of him who called you, all right? So, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, right as I said that, I thought crossed your mind, okay, when I said passions of the flesh. Now, it's going to be different for each of us, but that is a thought that will make you want to stop wandering, it'll make you want to stop, settle down some roots, it'll make you want to settle in this world, okay, you know your flesh and you know what that is. Okay, now if you give heed to that, if you engage in it, if you revel in it, okay, eventually you will be captive to it, okay, and in doing that, Will wage war against your soul. I know your soul will be tormented and destroyed, as those passions of the flesh muddy your view of God's glory, and they tear your affections away from the God who loves you and has made you and has given you those inheritances listed previously in the in the passage there. So, as a child of God, pursue purity in your life and uproot your fleshy desires. And leave it behind you, withering in the hot sun on some cement somewhere, okay? Dying and begin wandering heavenward again. Fill that hole left in your life that the root came out of with meditation on God and the marvellous light that he has called you out into. Now, our second application is to pursue purity and excellent behaviour toward authority. This is a bit of a carrot and stick one well this is more the stick so be sub this is uh sorry verse 13 of chapter 2 be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good now wandering while wandering through this life Yes, we are called to be subject to our governing institutions and authorities, as Romans 13 points out. Feel free to go check that out later. It's especially hard, though, when this doesn't seem fair. So just this last week, as I was writing this, actually, Camille came and gave me a a letter um, from the government saying they were adding debt to an unpaid speeding fine. Okay, now I understand that's fine. I understand they need to do that. Admin fees, whatever, they're 60 bucks apparently these days. But I... that would have been fine, except I didn't receive the original notice in the first place. Okay, otherwise I would have paid it. So I'm being, I'm, all week I've been feeling ripped off and grumpy and this has been preaching to me. Now, looking at the date and time, this is the hilarious bit. Looking at the date and time, I think I was heading to work after a school of preachers brekkie. Okay, which means I was speeding up a hill. Okay, so anyone who likes to pay up my little dolphin car, I can, I can do more than 60 Ks an hour up a hill. So take that. Anyway, I will deal with this fine. Verse, verse 15. Let's, let's get back to God's Word now. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, so if you live in a fairly usual kind of life like me, you'll have plenty of interaction with people who have a different view of God and His moral standard that should apply to us. Okay, many of us... A lot of people and a growing number of people think it's a leftover domineering evolutionary byproduct that mankind invented for a time and now we should be rid of. Okay? We have no need of it anymore, apparently. How is the best way to combat that way of thinking? Is it to put on the, the, the Rambo headband and arm up the keyboard and take to the trenches of Facebook? okay, Lobbing light grenades and whatever? Or what about resorting to the same methods that they use? of verbal intimidation and shouting down any alternate views, okay, or using slick media packages and celebrity dwarfs campaigns. Back to God's Word, the best way to prove to godless people of their ignorance is to, what does it say to do there in verse 15? Do good. You know what good works are. Get out there and do good in your workplaces, your communities and your neighbourhoods. Leave the boxing gloves and the ammunition crates at home. Okay? The last person, portion of verse 17 now, just before we move on. Fear God, honour the emperor. Okay, Honour the government, yes, as they are instituted by God, but they are not to be feared. Okay, The only one to be feared is God. Now, there are two more groups of people that we must pursue purity and excellent behaviour towards coming up, but through the Holy Spirit, sorry, the Holy Spirit through Peter has decided to interject a bit of an intermission here and sort of throws out the plan. Um, And we need to refresh and refocus back onto God's truth now with a little mini truth statement, okay? It might be because we need more grace heading into these other final two groups. I'm not sure, but I'm more than happy to take the Holy Spirit's lead on this one. So verse 21 of chapter 2, this is our little mini-truth, okay? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten Now, what we take out of that is Jesus is our example in suffering. While Jesus was suffering, he never sinned. Okay, when we are on the defensive, when we are under pressure or we are hurt, we feel it's our right to be able to sin. It's our right to hit back. It's our right to mouth off at somebody. And what we should be doing is what Jesus did, trusting ourselves to God the Father who judges justly and leave it with him. Okay, it makes sense now why we needed to understand that ahead of these last two purity pursuits. So third, pursue purity and excellent behaviour toward your spouse. Start of chapter 3. Ladies first, marrieds and then a word for all of our sisters. Wives, be subject to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, being subject here isn't some weird, archaic, misogynistic bent that some secular feminist would want you to believe, okay? This is a structure ordained by God that, sees, that he sees as precious as marriage reflects his relationship with his church, okay? This isn't being subject... This being subject, actually, in respectful and pure conduct is a position that is revealed as being truly powerful in winning over a husband to see God's Word through actions. Now, here's a really profound and beautiful thing, ladies. Here is an instruction for a wife to get her husband to contemplate something that will better them both and enrich their marriage a millionfold without subtle hints and without nagging. God's Word truly is amazing However, it does resemble silent treatment, though, so we won't talk about that. But obviously, without the bitterness that flows through there. Okay, now just before we move on to husbands, there is this little gem in here for all women who struggle with not seeing their beauty. Okay, in verse 4, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, ladies, all of you, there is an imperishable beauty in your gentle and quiet spirit, which God sees. Okay? And to Him, the one and only almighty King of the universe, it is very precious. Okay, So hold on to that one. Now, husbands, in verse 7, live with your wives. Sorry, verse 7 of chapter 3. Live with your wives In an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, men, how often do we show our wives genuine understanding and honor? Okay, if the answer is sometimes, a little, or never, okay, you need to fix this, okay? And you want an easy answer on how to fix it? That's what we do, yeah? Blokes, we fix things? Yeah? We fix things? Let's fix it in two steps, okay? Step one. We need to first dig around, dig deeply in the past of our lives, in the junk that's kept in our minds, okay? We need to find the roots and the embodied lies of how to treat women, okay, that you have been taught through things like religion, secular society, and pornography, and dig them out and kill them. Leave them laying on the concrete out there in the hot sun, okay, shriveling, okay, you don't, I don't know what ideas you've picked up in your mind that might have taken root, but maybe they are are false ideas where women are just possessions like your car or your boat, okay, or a servant of the house that you can control into doing something that you don't want to, or that being born a woman, she needs you to get her into heaven, okay, or being a woman makes her an object for your sexual gratification, Okay, these ideas are wrong and they are wicked and they need to be put to death. Now, men and married males who want to step up okay, and honour your wives, this is step two. This is for you. This is our action. Okay? This is the hard part. This is replacing. This is what we need to think of to replace all those things that we have cut out of our mind in step one. Okay? We need to remember this since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Okay, now that woman living with you isn't just the missus. Okay, man, I hate that one. And she's not just some chick you're shacked up with. Okay, she's not a woman who needs a husband to get into heaven. She's not just your bed warmer. Okay, she is an heir with you to the glorious grace given to us by our Heavenly Father through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, you as husbands are called to be leaders of equal heirs. And now, change your view on your wife. Your wife is a child of God with you. Okay, she is a daughter of the King of the universe. She is bought with Jesus' blood. She is saved. She is chosen. She is precious. She is beautiful. Okay, she is a gift given to you by your Heavenly Father because He said it was no good that you were alone. Okay, she is your helper. Now, a helper isn't a person of weakness. Someone only needs a helper if they can't do something themselves. Okay, she should be held with such prize and care and in such high esteem that only God himself is more precious in your life. So treat her with that in mind. Now, fourth and finally for us, for this uh, truth section, we are to pursue purity and excellent behaviour towards everyone. Now, finally, all of you... This is verse 8 of chapter 3, sorry. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So, referring back to chapter um, chapter 2, verse 17, to tie it together, okay? Honour everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honour the emperor. Okay, we are to honour everyone as we do the emperor or the government. Okay? Tenderly love your brothers and sisters, yet God is the only one that we should fear. So that's our second section. It's one of the longer ones. So, time to refocus now for our third lump. Okay? And our third statement of truth starts in verse 18 of chapter 3. For God also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. Now, Peter is once again reminding us of the truth that Jesus suffered for our sins in order to bring us to God. Okay, that great inequality, that righteous for the unrighteous, and all the wounding from that sacrifice was borne completely by the heart of God, for us. Now that's that's indescribable. I mean. Amen. Exactly, Parky. That's all you can say. Now, with that truth in mind, the following applications sort of really reflect back to our obligation on what we should be doing in the light of what God has done for us. Now, first and foremost, we are to live for God. First couple of verses of chapter 4 here, "...since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God." Second point, love one another. This is from verse 8 and 9 of chapter 4. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sin, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And third and final application, use your gifts. Verse 10 of chapter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, these these three applications tie together perfectly and and escalate back up. So, by using your God-given gifts to serve others in love, you are glorifying God in your life. So, the sole purpose of gifts are for serving one another so that God can be glorified. So right about now is where some of us think, oh, such and such is so much better at that than me. I'm not really talented in anything. You know, Blah, blah, whinge, whinge, whinge. We end up doing nothing. Okay. Notice the words there, as each has received a gift. So newsflash, buddy, the pity train has left the station without you. You have a gift. You've got to use it. Okay? Now thinking over this, before I get too fired up, I was prompted and convicted about something in this, okay, and I want to precursor this with a claim that I'm in the boat here as well, okay, so if I use strong language, talk to me later about it, but I'm preaching it myself to learn and change and implement this into my life also, okay, and the thought around this that's been poking my mind is this, if you have, you have enough to give, Okay, not if we have lots, we have enough to give, but if you just have, we have enough to give. So much of the time, we think we need to give from our exceptional ability in something or our excess out of our abundance of what we have, but that's not the way to look at it, okay? Sure, if you've got cash dripping out of your pockets as you're swaggering outside your mansion, down your heated driveway to go cry in your Ferrari, then yeah, you should be giving something to some people, okay? But even if you... Just have enough cash in your wallet, okay, you're, you're walking out of your modest rental in your dodgy part of town, trying to start the bomb of your car to go to the job that you hate, okay, even still, everything that you have, you should be holding with such a loose grip, okay, that you can give it to someone who needs it. There is always someone worse off than you. Now, it's sad that immediately we think of giving as always being monetary or the like, but, but even if you're an average cook and you, you can cook a meal for someone else, okay, you're not as good as Cheryl, who wins prizes in the local show for her croquet bushes or whatever those things are called, okay? But you can cook spag bol, okay? And get on that spag bol wagon. You haven't killed anyone with your spag bol yet. You start Start making it. Okay, you can't cook, but you can boil water. Why don't you use your cooking skills, go around to... Uh, a lonely person's house or someone who's just struggling, someone who just wants some company, use your cooking skills to boil them a cup of tea or coffee or something. And, okay, I get it. If you hate talking to people, yeah, man, me too. But, like, if you don't like talking to people, then take your mower and go mow, Borrow a mower from a mate and go and mow someone's yard. Mow your neighbour's yard at 3 in the morning. You'll love it. <laughs> you know? Just think about what you have and serve someone with that, okay? You have, you have enough to give, okay? Don't wait for something formal and large to be organised by the church and don't let it always be on Parky's shoulders. Just do it on a micro scale to someone in our little church here or a neighbour in your street, okay? So one of the things that can so easily make us put down roots in this world is our love of material stuff, Okay, it's just stuff that will one day be destroyed. Be careful with what you love here on earth. Okay, be careful of those roots going down and anchoring you here. Keep wondering, this isn't your home. This isn't your home. We're so precious about our time also, like thinking I need some me time all the time. Okay, I'm exhausted after working in air conditioning, sitting down at a desk for eight hours. Okay, I'm just going to Netflix and chill for the next 12 hours, you know, or, or play computer games for the next, whoa, is that the time? It's tomorrow already. Like, these things are fine in little amounts, but all I'm saying here is be careful, okay? We are given time and the ability to use in serving and loving others and to the highest extent, honouring, loving and living for our God. So don't waste the time that's given to you. You have time. Give time. We aren't promised tomorrow. Okay? It's no good saying, oh, I'll give my share when I'm wealthier in 10 years' time or I'll volunteer when I'm retired. Invest in what you have now, something that will yield gold, silver and precious stuff at the end of time. Don't surround yourself. Don't be a turkey scratching in wood and straw around you. Okay? Don't be scratching that around you, dude. Like, what happens when the fire comes? You've basically made your own pyre and you're sitting on it, okay? Don't be a Joan of Arc. So to follow this all up, use whatever you have to give to serve others, okay? And in doing so, this makes up one part of loving one another earnestly, which in turn also makes up one part of what it means to live for God, Okay? Now, the book of James, if you want to do some other reading, the book of James guns directly at this, at this aspect of our Christian walk. Okay, if you f- have faith, let's see it demonstrated, dude. Okay, so what are you doing with what you have? Now, now, finally, that's our, that was our third truth chunk in, in application instruction. Now, finally, this is our last one and that we need to focus on to close out Peter's letter, and it begins in verse 12 of chapter 4. So, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, down a bit now to verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, we are to expect suffering as a testing of our faith. Okay, this truth bomb is very similar to the first one that Peter gave. It's closing off the loop. Okay, Peter is reminding us of what this letter is for. It's like an introduction and a conclusion are linked. So are these first and last refocusing stages. Okay? Now there are two watchwords for the whole book nestled here in this truth statement. Sparkling away, just waiting to be found. In verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, how comforting is that for a small church riding the waves into persecution as they get bigger and bigger and bigger. You are blessed when you are insulted for Christ because his spirit rests on you. Big hug. And verse 9, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now after the last truth comes the last of the applications and instructions, and, and as we would expect, being the last, they are important. Not that any of those weren't important, but these are, um, they cover a lot of areas, sort of, and they are very important, they tie off. So first, for our leaders in our midst, start of chapter 5, the elders shepherding the flock. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as our partaker in His glory, that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, excuse me, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Okay, now I realise these verses are to a few men in our midst here that are charged with shepherding and oversight of us in our little church of Willowburn, but we as a congregation need to know, respect and assist in ways that we can and that we are asked to. Okay, so to our dear elder brothers, it's Rick and Parky here today, Continue looking to Jesus, the chief shepherd, as your only example in shepherding or banishing all else. Okay, As shepherds of a little church heading into tougher times, I want to encourage you guys to heed the words of Jesus from the good shepherd parable in John 10 about the highling who fled when the wolf and the scary times came because he didn't care for the sheep. Okay, Take your example from Jesus, the good shepherd, who lay down his life for his sheep to protect them through tough times. And secondly, for us all, humble yourselves. In talking about our elders, humble yourselves, okay? Everybody else, let's humble ourselves. Elders as well, humble yourselves, but the flow on. Second part of verse 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, this instruction is directly tied back to our second truth, refocusing application section. Okay, Humility is the key to being able to pursue purity in all those levels of your relationships, yourself towards God, authority, your spouse and everyone. Okay, I want... So I want to spend a little bit of time here to correctly define what this humility looks like so that we don't get a skewed idea of it. And this is something I've been going through lately as as well, so also keen to have a chat about it afterwards if you have questions, along with criticisms from before. But anyway, this pure humility we are called to isn't one where we are bashing ourselves down all the time. It's not where we are overly criticising ourselves or demeaning ourselves. We're not punching ourselves in the head or ripping our beards out or sleeping on beds of nails or anything crazy like that, okay? It is simply this, okay? It is not thinking of yourself at all, okay? Here it is again, rephrased cleverly by someone who is much more skilled in wordcraft than me. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, It is thinking of yourself less. Okay, now if if that could be called simple, actually that's not, that's incredibly hard. Okay, and the only way, that's never going to come through your flesh, the only way you're going to get that is through submitting yourself to God first, in humility really. And this thought also resurfaces in James chapter 4, he says, but he gives more grace, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The only way to have true humility toward authority, your spouse, or to anyone is to submit yourself to God first, and humility will flow through you to others. Okay, it's an act of faith in God to be able to act humbly to other people. The thought goes through our mind what if they take advantage of me you know, what if I become a doormat what if they just take what they want you know? submit yourself to God and have faith in his vast mighty incomprehensible plan that he will support you and protect you in your humility okay now this is the last of the applications and I run heavy on time yeah um, can we just do a quick head check? Is anyone fallen out any windows? We're all good. One, two. Everybody right? Okay, great. I'm glad we're on level ground. Now, while we're all awake, third and finally, okay, be watchful while standing firm in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith knowing... That the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, so now let's break this down with three R's into a real-world sort of analogy. So as most of you might, as most of you know, my day job is in the electrical engineering world and distributing planning electrical networks, distributing electricity around in, in high voltages. Now, electricity is incredibly dangerous, right? Any any of us know that, okay? Completely invisible, except when it's in the lightning form. But if that's coming towards you, you cactus anyway. All right. So it's (laughs) just yeah, that's right. I'm sort of twisted that we can laugh about that. But anyway, to stay safe around it and to be free from it, we need to be able to do a couple of things. We first need to be able to reveal, okay? We need to know whether it is there or not with the right equipment and procedures. We first, we second, need to respect it and understand what it can do and how it works and what damage it can do, so we can deal with it sensibly. And thirdly, we need to resist it through safety measures and protection. So before I get into this, I want to point out that I'm not making light of Satan by comparing him to electricity, but for a helpful analogy, this works. Okay, there will be more in this Know Your Enemy series with Parky coming up in June. Okay, so first we are to reveal. Okay, Satan. He's a great imitator, isn't he? Okay, so we must be sober-minded, watchful and vigilant. His business is copying good stuff and bending it into an evil form to try and defraud God and to deceive us. We need to sharpen up and be able to better reveal and recognise his lies and trickery. And how do we do that? That's right, by immersing ourselves And feasting on that spiritual milk that we talked about earlier, craving God's word, immersing ourselves in there so that we can, as it says in 1 John 4, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Okay. So the better we know God's word and get in tune with God's view of things, the clearer Satan's lies and trickery will be for us to see. Secondly, we need to respect, okay, Satan is a dangerous foe. We that belong to Christ don't need to fear him, but we mustn't ignore him or take him lightly or laugh about him. We must be sober-minded when it comes to our conflict with him. And finally, we are to resist while standing firm against the enemy. We resist him by arming up with the full armour of God, the full spiritual PPE, if you like, The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness to spread the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, to get back to our friend Peter in John, let's close up the loop now. If that night before Jesus was crucified, he had been watching and standing firm, he would not have boasted in himself to follow Jesus. He would have instead heeded Jesus' advice to watch and pray and not fallen asleep in the garden. He would not have lashed out and taken off Malchus's ear. He would not have stumbled when questioned by the reception girl and the group of people around the fire. He would not have cursed himself against knowing Jesus. So there is our overview of of Peter's first letter. So it's a book that despite its size has solid grounding truth followed by clear instruction on Christian living during times of persecution. It's written by a guy who followed Jesus day in and day out and for three years, and then when confronted with possible persecution, he denied knowing him. And then Jesus comes for him and Peter jumps out of the boat and... and Jesus took him back and restored him back to himself. And Peter was then taken by the Holy Spirit and changed and brought into one of the central positions in establishing the early church. It's a letter written by a guy who knew that a death for Christ's glory, a death of martyrdom, was coming for him. Okay, It was written by a guy who, despite what troubles came his way or what happened to others around him, was told by Jesus, You follow me. Thanks.